Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're talking to Dr. Heng Hartsey about his new article, What Happened When I Made My Students Cheat? Welcome to the show, Joel. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here and we get to talk about this fascinating article and why you did make your students <laughs> cheat. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Sure. Um, yeah, I come to this topic of academic integrity from um, not not from that perspective. I, that was not an original interest of mine. I'm, uh, my background is in applied linguistics. So I study, uh, academic writing and, um, primarily do work with students for whom English is a second language. So I have a lot of, um, experience working with international students. I, uh, worked abroad in China for a couple of years, teaching, uh, writing and other English courses. Um, and uh, yeah, my, my subfield is what is what's called second language writing. So primarily working with um, academic writers who, who grew up speaking a language or writing in a language other than English. Um, and I've been, uh, so I, I did my doctorate in that at the University of British Columbia. And uh, since then, I've been uh, a faculty member at the at Simon Fraser University, which is also here in BC. Um, i trying to think what else is interesting about that. What's, something interesting about SFU, where I work, is that we're a non-departmentalized faculty of education. So faculty, and this was a term I had to learn when I um, moved to Canada because I'm originally from the U.S. The faculty is like what we would call the college in the U.S., so the College of Arts and Sciences or the College of Education. Um, so our faculty is non-departmentalized, which means that uh, there is no department, say, of uh, you know ESL education or no department of math education we're all together kind of in one big pool, which makes it a really interesting place to work and has allowed me to develop some interests that may have been sort of like outside of that discipline of applied linguistics. And that's partly where my interest in academic integrity kind of had a chance to blossom. And I actually was able to create a course about it. 
Um, so that's been a, an interesting uh, and cool aspect of of um, of where I work now. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure I answered everything there, but that's that's a bit about me and how I came to this interest, I think. That's a great introduction. Thank you. One of the things I do also like to ask is, what drew you to this field of study? So if you think back to, let's say, high school and you were looking forward, what did you think you wanted to study and how closely is your job now aligned with what you thought your interests were going to be? Oh, that's a really good question. Yeah, I always assumed I would do something involving English, um, but I think I probably imagined myself as like a literature professor. Um, I think that's sort of the fantasy of the elbow patches and the the bookshelves crammed with novels and stuff. Um, I think that's probably what I imagined. I always really enjoyed sort of reading and writing when I was younger. Um, but I think it was, and I always have to be careful, I don't want to um, tread on the good work done by people who study literature. But I think as I progressed through academia, I sort of felt like I didn't want to make literature a, a career, I guess. Like I wanted to just enjoy, <laughs> enjoy reading books. Um, and so I felt like um, language education offered something a little bit more, um, uh, I hesitate to say practical, but it, it just, it was a little bit more interesting to me um, as something to kind of dig into um, and kind of apply some theoretical tools to, um, in sort of the real world. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to insult literature as a, as a field. I don't, that's not my intention at all. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think, I think that when I was, um, I think the turning point probably, you know, I, I, I had been thinking about going to grad school for like, maybe, I don't know, do an MFA or something. And, and then I discovered this program, um, through the Peace Corps called the Master's International Program, which people may or may not be familiar with. Um, and I ended up applying for such a program and being accepted to it at what is now called Cal Poly Humboldt. At the time, it was called Humboldt State University, one of the smaller uh, and scrappier California State Universities, the furthest north California State University. It's almost in Oregon. That's how far north it is. Um uh, and I was accepted to that program uh, to do sort of study ESL teaching and then, in theory, have a Peace Corps placement that would involve that. Um, to make a long story short, I was not accepted by the Peace Corps due to a minor medical issue. And it really was a minor medical issue. It was kidney stones. Uh, but they told me that I couldn't join the Peace Corps if I had kidney stones, which is really funny. Uh, and so my wife and I ended up deciding to kind of find our own way after that program. And we thought, well, we'll still try this English teaching thing. And we ended up in China, which turned out to be a really, a really great experience and made me realize that, hey, this kind of English education and language education in this context is really interesting to me. It was really stimulating to be teaching, uh, you know, in a place that I hadn't grown up in and learn how English was used outside of the United States and things like that. Um, and that yeah, that kind of sparked for me a lifelong fascination with that. So I ended up doing my doctorate on um, certain aspects of um, uh, English writing in the Chinese context, uh, and kind of just went from there. So it was, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I think that uh, it was, in the end, the, the right path for me, I still sometimes wonder what my life would be like if I had, if I had ended up in an English department. Um, but for the most part, I think I'm, I think I'm in the right place. And so 
somewhere along the line, you got an idea for a class that you wanted to give a more racy title than the um, powers that be were going to let you call it. Do you want to talk about what you wanted to call the, yeah. the class and what it's actually called? Yeah, so I had this fantasy uh, almost ever since I started working at SFU. Um, for reasons I'll get into in a minute, but I was like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to have an, so I, again, teach in education. Wouldn't it be cool to have a class called Cheating 101? And I bet like tons of people would sign up for it because they would think, oh, what is this? Or is it going to give me tips on how to cheat or something? Probably they would have realized that's not it, but it would have gotten people's attention, I feel like. Uh, yeah, so I would advise to change the name to Academic Integrity, uh, which I did. But when I started my kind of faculty career, I, I would hear a lot of whispers about cheating, um, among mostly among faculty. Um, and it, you know, there, it was mostly anecdotal, right? So it'd be things like, well, you know, I hear cheating is happening in this course, or we, we think misconduct is happening here, or we've heard about these, uh, off-campus tutoring agencies that maybe are doing something unethical. Um, but it wasn't, um, it wasn't something that was really talked about very openly, or if it was, there was rarely sort of like a robust kind of like, I felt like we weren't applying the same rigor to those discussions that we might to other aspects of education, I guess. Like it was mostly something that was kind of talked about um, in an anecdotal way, I guess. Um, and so I thought, especially as somebody who works with a lot of first year students and kind of first year writing type courses, and also as somebody who works with a lot of um, international and immigrant students who unfortunately often in the media get portrayed as the ones who are driving this sort of conversation about academic integrity, I thought I'd like to look more into this. So I, there were two things that I did. One was I sort of started creating this course that was about the theory and practice of academic integrity. Like how has it been understood over the years? How do education researchers talk about it? Um, and there's a pretty, like there's a pretty robust kind of field that's built up over the last 40 years or so. Um, you know, sort of, I, I think it's, it can be called its own field of study at this point in academic integrity. Um, and then at the same time I applied for and received um Canadian government funding to launch a research project about students who I have to be careful about this because I do think it's important to nuance it students who seek paid professional help with their academic work and to me that is a spectrum um, that on the most extreme side would include clear instances of cheating things like ghostwriters, you know, paying people to do assignments, this type of thing. But also on the other end of the spectrum might include more innocuous things like um, a quick grammar proofreading of your assignment before turning it in, or even something like just subject matter tutoring to improve, improve your knowledge in an area or general language tutoring to try to improve your English, these types of things. Um, so both of those kind of started at the same time. Um, so I've taught the course once and it's scheduled to be taught one more time coming up here next year, I think. And then the, the research project is really in full swing right now too. And we're just learning about, um, yeah, learning about how, you know, how and why students choose to do these things and getting a little more, trying to get a little more understanding. I think in all of this stuff, I'm really trying to understand the student perspective. I know the professor perspective, our perspective is students shouldn't cheat and this is bad. <laughs> um, but I'm trying to get a little more of an understanding from the student perspective. Why might somebody, um, why might somebody do this? Or how do students even understand academic integrity? How do they understand the policies that universities have? How do they, um, 
how do they deal with gray areas um, where it's unclear whether something may be legitimate or not when it comes to, say, collaboration with a classmate or uh, these types of things. So both of them have been, they've been very complementary, these two things, the course and the, and the research project. And it's been really um, interesting to do them at the same time. And so you started this course and pretty quickly you gave them your students, you had about 28 students who signed up and pretty quickly you gave them an assignment where the directions were they had to cheat. How did that go? Yeah. Um, that was really interesting. And I was, I was nervous about it. And in fact, I'm <laughs> a little nervous talking about it because like, I think it was a really cool, innovative, interesting assignment, but I could also imagine like maybe the university wouldn't want me to like <laughs> be promoting this a lot. Um, so it was, I had this idea early on. I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to um, just kind of use the student's own ideas as a resource? Like, if you were to complete this assignment in a dishonest way or in a way that's like um, that you consider cheating, like what would you do? Um, and so we, we started with a, um, uh, I don't have the article in front of me, but it's a, a really interesting article. I know the authors are called McClung and Schneider. Um, and it was an article about, they sort of did a meta synthesis of previous research about academic dishonesty. And they sort of came up with a taxonomy of like, I don't know, it was like 15 or 16 different behaviors and they categorized these things. So everything from copying somebody's homework to unauthorized collaboration to um, things you might not think of as academic dishonesty, like attempting to uh, unduly influence the professor to give you a better grade than, than, they, than they might have. Um, so using that kind of taxonomy and then also using the university's own academic integrity policy, I gave them a quiz and I said, sort of, I'd like you to use any methods, you know, keeping in mind sort of safety and (laughs) what's, you know, don't do anything unsafe or illegal. Like we do have a policy. I think there's a policy against like destroying lab equipment, which wouldn't have been relevant to my class or like, you know, stealing dangerous chemicals. So (laughs) as long as you're not doing stuff like that, um, uh, go ahead and complete it that way. And really the, the goal of the assignment there, it was a quiz, although the quiz was a really minor portion of the actual grade. I think it was like a five question quiz. Um, but the bulk of the grade, like probably about 75% or more of their grade on that assignment was to write a one or two page reflection of how did you cheat? Um, you know, what methods did you use? Um, and how, how did, how did that, you know, what did you learn, if anything, from that about cheating or about the material or whatever? And then how did that make you feel? Because I think the affective dimension of this is really interesting. Um, and there was a a wide range of responses. The I tried to make the quiz as kind of pedagogically bad as possible. So I said, I told them, like, I'm just going to give you a quiz on everything we've learned so far, which I think is like a pretty classic bad move for a for a teacher like not give the students a sense of what type of material you're looking for them to have sort of mastered or you know what they might want to review um and actually some of the students said that was uh that was a big motivator to cheat because if i wasn't going to be specific about what i was quizzing them on then <laughs> you know there's no way to prepare which i thought was really funny um so yeah it was um i i it was a fascinating, fascinating assignment. I really, as I said in the, in the, the inside higher ed piece, um, it was, a, a, 
there was a kind of feeling of um, fear and exhilaration on my part. Like I, I wasn't sure what was going to happen. I was getting a lot of emails from students that week and I wasn't sure if they were serious or not. I wasn't sure if they were using like emailing me as a way to try to cheat um, or whatever. And it was in a way, I feel like I was in the shoes of a student who cheats because I felt like I was in this strange moral gray area where I thought I was doing something that was going to work, but maybe it was going to blow up in my face. You know, maybe a student was going to report me to the university for asking them to cheat. Um, these types of things. And I, it felt theoretically sound to me. Like we had, uh, one of the things that really influenced me is I read some really interesting, or I had the students read some really interesting pieces by, um, this, uh, education scholar, Dave Cormier, who is at the university of Windsor here in Canada. And he has a couple of, I think they're book chapters in a, I think it's a, I think you can find them on his website, but he has this section where he talks about, which I really like, he talks about this notion of, you know, the idea of a textbook. I don't know if they have this in university, but definitely in high school, like, or grade school, there's like the teacher's copy of the textbook. You know what I mean? That has all the answers. Oh yeah. Filled in. yeah. And he said, we, we have to teach as though every student has the teacher's copy, like, because they have access to the internet, right? They have access to, you know, all this information. And I thought that was really fascinating. And it's like, how would you how would you teach? How would you assess? How would you evaluate if you assumed that, quote unquote, the answers are already available and accessible um, to to students? Um, and so that was that was really influential to me. So I thought, yeah, let's assume that, that this information is available out there. Um, how are students going to access it? How are they going to process it? What are they going to do? And it was just it was really, really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> You mentioned earlier that student, certain students are assumed to cheat more maybe based on their background or, or where they're from. But one of the things that's gotten a lot of press as well is parents who cheat on behalf of their student, whether they're using the parent group at their university to say, hey, where can we find examples of back chemistry tests to parents who are willing to help edit the student's essay? And one of your students kind of went down that path and asked his mom to do it. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, that that was funny. And that was he was by no means the only one to do that. There were several students who basically said they bribed their family members to do work for them. Uh, one, yeah, the one one student said he said he would do the dishes if his mom would do his assignment. And then another, another student said she bought her brother a bubble tea for, <laughs> for him to do her quiz. Um, but what's funny about that is um, that is not... I mean, having somebody do your assignment for you surely is dishonest, but I think this notion of working within the networks that you have, whether that's family or friends or peers, um, in order to sort of get help with your academic work, that's a really common practice. And it's something that we all do. You know, in my own field, we have this term that was coined by the um, writing and literacy scholars, Teresa Lillis and Mary Jane Curry, which they call literacy brokering, which I think is an interesting term. And to them, literacy brokers are people who sort of are between the writer and the publication. So a literacy broker could include someone like uh, a journal editor or a copy editor who maybe works for the academic journal, let's say if you're a scholar publishing, but it also includes a colleague who you ask to read your piece and get feedback on it, um, the anonymous reviewer, uh, a family member who helps you double check your grammar before you send it to uh, a colleague, um, in, in some cases, like I pay an editor in a lot of cases to help me 
with my references. I know APA style well, but I don't know other styles well. And I can use my professional development money to hire an editor to help me change change my references to Chicago style if I need to, for example. And so I always feel like if we do that as academics or if professional writers do that, um, might we not expect to see something similar um, with, with you know, apprentice or apprentices or with students? Uh, and so I, th- I think that a more, maybe a more expansive understanding of what collaboration is, is, is maybe in order. Um, again, you know, clearly we don't want students paying or bribing people to simply do their work for them. Um, but I think that it's, it's probably more, again, as, as I was saying earlier, more of like a spectrum or a gray area in some cases. I had a couple of students just collaborate by just sort of sitting to, I guess they weren't sitting together because it was um, still remote, <laughs> uh, remote learning, but I think they were chatting with each other, you know, Googling for the answers, cutting and pasting answers from each other. And I think there's actually a lot of learning happening in that process. There's a kind of, um, you know, like Vygotskyan, like, um, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a peer learning experience. They are actually learning from each other, even if they're doing it in a way that might not be sanctioned normally. Um, so yeah, I think I think you know the idea that academic work is just should only be done kind of in isolation, sitting in the library, just you and your books, um, is probably uh, wrong. <laughs> I guess. You also asked students how they felt about it, and there was a range of feelings, including it sounds like almost panic attacks, just they felt kind of just stressed out, sick to their stomach. And one of your students' email you said you thought almost gave you a heart attack. So <laughs> how did how did everybody cope with this? Yeah. And was that part of the debriefing conversations that you had? It was. And I, you know, it's, it's something that made me really have to consider whether it was, whether this assignment was okay to do or not. I think ultimately... It was one person. I only had a few experienced teachers in the course. Most of them were aspiring teachers or just people who thought the course was interesting. Uh, and one of them, who was probably the teacher with the most experience, his his introduction to the uh, to his reflection just said, "I feel so dirty." <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I think that um, it, it it really I, the, the more I, I will generalize a bit here, but I think the more people were really ensconced in like the experience of being a student, particularly like early to mid years undergraduate on this assignment, I think the more they sort of thought like, yeah, this was interesting. I was trying out different ways of getting the material. Uh, You know, some of them would say, yeah, ultimately it wasn't helpful and I didn't like it. Or others would say, yeah, it actually was kind of helpful. But I found that the people who are a little bit more kind of still in that world of being a student were a little more comfortable kind of playing around in this area. I think it was the the more advanced students and the more experienced teachers who were less comfortable with it. So people who were doing a, a teaching certification degree, people who were already experienced teachers, people who were doing graduate degrees, um, they seemed to be a lot more uncomfortable with it, uh, which is probably more kind of where I would sit, right? Because we've, I think we have internalized for a long time, um, not with any official, and I don't think anyone ever told us this, but I think we approach, or I certainly have over the years approached academic dishonesty as something that I need to police, that I need to catch. Um, and as a writing teacher, I'm very familiar with this notion of seeing a phrase in a student's paper that strikes me as unusual for them and quickly going to Google and popping it in there in quotation marks and sort of this 
um, thrill of like, aha, um, I caught you kind of pops up. And that's, that is not how I want to teach, <laughs> honestly, right? I would, I, I would prefer to build a relationship of mutual trust, not of suspicion with my students, even if that trust is occasionally um, taken advantage of, which I, it certainly is from time to time. Um, uh, I think I've gotten a little bit off track here, but I, the fact is that I think, um, it was, it was such an unusual type of assignment for all of us that I think everybody was just a little bit more on their toes than they would normally be. And the person who sent me that email, I mean, (laughs) kudos to her because she really got me. Um, she sent me an email that sort of said, I don't think this was fair. She had, she had missed a week where I had explained the assignment and I don't even recall what grade she had gotten on the quiz, but she sort of said, this is unfair. I don't, you know, I, I, you've got to let me retake the quiz because I, it wasn't explained to me properly and all this. And I sort of thought, oh gosh, I, I didn't want to offend her. So I thought, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, of course you can redo it. And then she sent me back an email saying, oh, no, I'm just messing with you. I was, this is one of those cheating behaviors, you know, where I'm trying to influence you to change my grade. But I was ready to send another email threatening to uh, go to your dean and explain what was going on. And I just thought, oh, man, like my life flashed before my eyes when she said that. So, you know, maybe maybe we need to tone down the element of um, subterfuge a little bit on this assignment. Uh, But the idea of it, I think, is still, you know, very can be very fruitful. I was thinking about the subterfuge um, aspect of it and a friend of mine, uh, her daughter is studying game theory at Mm. college. And I was thinking if you team up and teach this with a professor of game theory, you could really explore cheating in a whole lot of ways. Well, What's funny too is like actually a lot of economists are the ones who have driven some of the research on this because they do it. Yeah, they do this sort of and I, I know nothing about that area, but it's like they talk about it as kind of a cost benefit analysis or willingness to take risks or these types of things. So they'll build a profile of who is the student that is expressing more willingness to to kind of weigh the cost and balance of these things. And they'll sort of build a demographic profile based on student surveys. Um, so, yeah, it's fascinating. There's a lot of different angles you can come at this with. One of the words you mentioned in the article was desperation. How much did you find desperation was a factor when you were um, considering this and when you were talking with your students about the inside world of their cheating? Yeah, that's really fascinating. And I think, I mean, that's a, I don't know if that's a, a construct that we can measure necessarily, but I do know that when we look at um, this question of sort of who are the students who seem to be more willing to cheat or who seem to be more willing to engage in sort of this the spectrum of like services that we might not want them to um it does tend to be students with sort of like lower average gpas for example in some of the research i've read um and in in our own research that we're doing so we have this project uh, myself and uh my colleagues sandra zappa holman at the university of british columbia and Tim Anderson at the University of Victoria, both here in Canada. Uh, it's called the PASS Project. So PASS, P-A-S-S, Paid Academic Support Services or Private Academic Support Services. Um, one of the things we're finding so far, we haven't totally analyzed this data yet, is that quite a lot of the students, when they're given a variety of things they can choose about reasons they might pursue paid help, 
uh, whether that's a website like Chegg or a proofreader or a tutor. Uh, and and a, by tutor, I mean maybe someone who's going a bit beyond just uh, offering subject matter advice, but maybe teaching them how to pass the test in a particular class or something like that. One of the things we find is that they're often citing things like, I have too many, I have too much work on my plate. Uh, I am concerned that I will, I, I, I need to raise my GPA. Um, I'm having trouble understanding uh, the concepts that the professor is, is teaching in this particular course. So I, I feel like what emerges in some ways is a portrait of, you know, a handful of students who feel overwhelmed, who feel um, in some cases, although they don't often cite language as a particular barrier uh we tend our study focuses on students for whom english is a, a second or additional language we do i think see students who feel that it's it's difficult to not only be encountering new disciplinary information but to be encountering them in a new and unfamiliar linguistic and cultural context um and so i think all of those factors combined the amount of work the um unfamiliar disciplinary concepts doing it in a second language, like all of these things really can pile up and lead a student to seek help elsewhere. Um, and I think that's, um, again, I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to be naive and say that's the only reason somebody would ever cheat. Like there's, there are plenty of reasons, but um, we're finding, I, I think um, that quite a few students have this element of um, just feeling overwhelmed by what they're doing. Huh. It sounds like there was a, an aspect of talking about integrity and ethics in the course that you taught. And you cite um, a Catholic theologian who wrote uh, a book as well about this topic of, I think his name is Paul Griffiths, um, about a theological defense of plagiarism. And I have to say that stopped me completely. <laughs> I, how is there a theological defense of plagiarism? I shared with you during soundcheck that I had been badly plagiarized from before, and it's still painful all these years later to recall that that happened to me. And I don't feel at all spiritual about having my work stolen. <laughs> so um, can you, uh, can you explain that? Uh, yeah. And I mean, yeah, i I feel when it, when uh, confronted with that experience, I mean, how could you justify it? But I, I probably he was being a little provocative. But one of the things that I found fascinating when I was trying to read and learn more about this was I came across this chapter by, yeah, this this uh, Paul Griffiths about uh, the chapter in the book. So the book itself is not solely about plagiarism. It's about other aspects of um, what's the name of the book? It's called Intellectual Appetites. So it's about kind of knowledge and and knowing in general. But he has this chapter called Kidnapping, which is about plagiarism, which apparently that's the root, uh, the Latin root of plagiarism actually means like stealing a person, stealing a body, um, which shows how, how serious we think it is in academia, right? We put it on par with kidnapping. Um, but he, he writes about this notion, and I think in the abstract, it makes sense, if, uh, albeit maybe more difficult to apply in particular cases of plagiarism. But his notion is that essentially, in, in, in his way of viewing it, that the very notion of sort of language or discourse or words or what he calls word ensembles, collections of words, these things are not invented by us whole cloth. They're not the notion that words or certain arrangements of words are a particular person's property is sort of incoherent if you have a view of the world as being given 
um, to a person, right? So if, if in, you know, say Catholic theology, if, if the notion is that like, um, you know, the world is a gift, your existence in this, in this planet is a gift to you and everything can be received that way, including words. I sometimes think about, you know, we have a distinction in my field between first language acquisition and then second language learning. The notion is that language acquisition somehow carries with it this innateness. And we do have that obviously, like, um, biologically and in, in traditional, like Chomsky and linguistics, we have this sort of mysterious faculty for being able to um, acquire any language uh, if we're put in that environment from birth. Uh, and then there's this notion that, well, a second language actually needs to be learned and it might be a diff- different cognitive process. But I think that, I don't know, maybe from a more sociocultural perspective, like all learning is social. We d- can't know words unless we hear other people say them or read that other people wrote them. So anything that we take um, that we sort of um, take in and are later able to produce as words or arrangements of words was first given to us. Um, now, you might say that he goes too far in saying, well, therefore, there's no such thing as plagiarism, <laughs> or therefore, um, you know, no one person can be said to own a word or a collection of words or what have you. So maybe we don't want to go that far. But I do think that notion that um, language cannot be owned is a pretty fruitful place to start when we think about, um, you know, whether whether we need to be treating this notion of language reuse as something really problematic that we need to police rather than kind of po- potentially, not always, but potentially either a legitimate form of learning to do academic discourse or at least an attempt, however clumsy, to you know figure out how to speak, how to write about things. And I think we do that a lot. I think I've heard people talk about, uh, I forget who said it, but it's like being an undergraduate in a lot of ways is like being a ventriloquist. It's learning how do people, how do experts in your field talk about this stuff and learning how to mimic them in some ways. Um, and I think about even you know some of the most popular like writing textbooks that I use for first year writing they have templates in them because students don't know how these things are put together at first. So they have templates for how to um, talk about when you agree with something versus when you disagree with something or um, templates for how to introduce a particular section of a paper because we're not born knowing these things. Um, so I'm not going to say that we can, uh, we can uh, yeah, spiritually defend the person who plagiarized your chapter. Um, but I think it is an interesting way of looking at um, the concept of plagiarism, I guess. I think it is important to question knowledge production and the idea of knowledge ownership. Um, So I do appreciate that part of it uh, very much. Um, One of the things you wanted to do with the students is use this experience of cheating to really look at the purpose of education. How did that go? Did they start seeing what professors were aiming for differently? Did they change how you thought about measuring and assessing education? Yeah, I think so in some ways. I mean, uh, obviously, because I teach in a more like social sciences and humanities oriented discipline or disciplines, it's a little easier for me to say, well, we can just adjust how we teach and we don't need to give multiple choice tests. And, you know, it's easy to say when there's no right answer in your discipline, right? Or no, no, no particular solution you need to come to. Um, so I understand that. I, I found the students were um, 
yeah, a bit cynical about some of the experiences they'd had, just feeling that professors w- were not willing to take some of their concerns seriously. I, I've a number of students, both in the course and in the research project, have talked about um, what they feel uh, as being unfairly accused of academic uh, misconduct um, and these types of things. So I think that I think that something we both, like both myself and the students, learned is that. There's a real sense of, again, I use this term, I guess, like policing or um, this sense of like academic integrity policy and warnings about academic misconduct as sort of this wall or this barrier, this fence that is placed around the experience of learning um, that can be really limiting in some ways. It can it can create a lot of fear and, and mistrust on both sides. Um, and you know, the question, I guess, is like, what would it look like without that? Or what would it look like with less, less fear and mistrust and more um, kind of openness and, and willingness to, I guess, to trust each other. One of the case studies, so I I didn't have a chance to talk too much about this in the piece. But one really cool assignment that we did is I I had students in groups, write case studies of real world cases of academic misconduct that have been in the news over the years. Uh, many of which are really fascinating. And one of the cases that the students wrote about was this Harvard cheating scandal of 2012. I don't know if people will remember this, but um, and I might get some of the details wrong here because I don't have it in front of me. But in 2012, a group of, gosh, at least 100 <laughs> uh, students uh, was accused of, of academic misconduct on a quiz in a political, I want to say it was a political science course. Uh, many of them were, if not expelled, many of them were suspended for maybe a year. Um, it was based on a particular typo that was made in one of the answers that many students reproduced. But the professor had explicitly allowed students to collaborate on studying for this exam. That was that was uh, considered to be within the the pale, within the guidelines for for studying. Um, but when this particular typo in this like number was, I think it was an extra space after a comma in a number. It was like 22,000 comma, and then an extra space and then some more numbers. Um, Because of that, a number of students were reported to the university, a number were suspended. Uh, Ultimately, it became such a controversy that the professor himself uh, was denied tenure and ended up moving on to another institution. Who can say whether it was because of that? Um, but just this notion of like a, a hard application of a policy, well, you're not allowed to, sure, you can study together, but you're not allowed to get the answers together. Uh, where, where is that line? Uh, we, I had w- one student in the research project that we interviewed talk about a very painful experience that was very similar, wherein he and three other students had formed a study group for a, uh, for a course on a, I think it was a midterm uh, which resulted in their being sent a written warning from the dean of their faculty. Uh, and the student said, I will never study with classmates again. I will never join a study group again. It's not worth it. It's not worth the the fear that I'm going to be unfairly accused of something, uh, which is just so sad. So, you know, I don't have a solution necessarily to all this. Um, but I think that being able to talk about it honestly with students was and to see their frustration with some of these inflexible applications of policy uh, was really eye-opening. And just the notion that like students should just know what the policies are and how they're applied. Um, we don't really talk about them in our classes. We don't, 
um, we just put a little link that says, yeah, don't cheat. And here's our university's academic integrity policy. Um, we've got to be more nuanced about this and we've got to really have a better understand or better conversation about it, I think. I was thinking about that as well when I was reading the article about, wow, what if more colleges and universities reproduce your class or one similar to it as part of the freshman core curriculum? Because giving students a handbook and assuming that everybody understands the nuances and the rules the same way um, is is not realistic. And also some of these um, tutoring sites seem very similar in what they offer to the on-campus tutoring um, services. And yet, as you dig deeper into what these very legitimate looking websites offer, they'll, some of them, as you go through different screens and look through different things, you start to find out they'll actually write your paper for this certain fee. Whereas the on-campus campus writing center is not going to write your paper for you. I can say that with great sincerity because I, as an undergrad, that was my college job was working at the writing center. And there were times when we were just crunched. So many people came in and I didn't have any more appointments left and neither did any of the other writing tutors. And so people were forced to find their own help. And sometimes they would circle back after they got a really bad grade. And the professor would say, well, you can have a chance to revise this, but you have to go to the campus writing center. And because we were past the crunch, they could get an appointment and I'd look at it. And because I was also an undergrad, they would open up and tell me about having paid for this help. And I would kind of ask questions and unpack what they paid for. And what was clear is they had paid for services that went beyond the student actually demonstrating their own learning. And the professor clearly flagged that. And now they are not going to pass for this work that they turned in. But they didn't see the nuances, the difference between trying to get an appointment at the campus center and going and paying this professional who quoted different fees. And they yeah. said, fine, whatever. I can't afford a bad grade. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in some cases too, like, um, you know, a student, I, we had a few students in our project say, sure, I'll go to the writing center. But what I really want is someone to proofread my grammar and writing centers famously, like that's not part of their mandate, right? They, the notion is like, we create, you know, we help create better writers, not better writing per se, right? Um, and so, you know, some students sort of say, well, I tried going to the on-campus services, but I, they didn't give me what I wanted, you know, or whatever. So I think it's, it's tr but it is tricky because then they fall into this gray area. And some, some students in the project that, uh, that we interviewed will say, yeah, I don't really think this is cheating. I came to them with my paper that felt very disorganized and confused and they helped me see how I could turn it into something better. And they, they gave, maybe they gave me some ideas, maybe they rewrote parts of it, but it was still my original work. But then on the other side, we have students who say, yeah, I did go to somebody who pretty much did it for me. And do I feel bad about it? Yeah, a little bit, but otherwise I'm going to fail the course or otherwise I'm going to the curve is going to kill me because I think my classmates are paying people to help them too, you know? So sometimes they feel really trapped in this. Um, you know, it's like they, it's like they have no other, like you said, I can't afford a bad grade. So what are the, what are the other options available to me? Um, which is too bad, but it's true. Another thing that, that came up in terms of sort of like what you might be able to get on campus versus going to, to pay somebody, something that came up a few times in our research was, um, I can go to my TA during their office hours, right? I can go 
from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. on, you know, Mondays and Thursdays or whatever. Uh, but if I pay a tutoring company and I send them a chat at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night, they're going to respond to me right away because I pay them and they have somebody ready to help me. Um, and, you know, a, your TA can't compete with that. I mean, nor should they. <laughs> but uh, it is just interesting. It's this it's almost become a sort of like market driven um you know, service, uh, which is, is something I had not considered before and is, is fascinating. And is that one of the conversations that you open with the students that you're not as interested in the product as you are in what their actual learning process was? I mean, I guess so. And again, easier to do in some disciplines than others. Although even in say math, you know, you want to see the student show their work. In fact, some of the students we talked to who use websites like Chegg said, and you know, I don't know who, <laughs> maybe they're not being completely honest, but I think it was interesting to hear them say, look, I'm not just going to there for the answer because my professor wants to see my work too. I'm going there to figure out how do you get that answer? Um, and so, yeah, obviously like process versus product, that's one way to look at this and to sort of say like, let's, regardless of what your discipline is, let's show your work, right? Let's do, and that's one of the things that's talked about in sort of creating assignments. You know, they call it designing out academic dishonesty, right? Can we design out plagiarism? Can we design out cheating? Um, So can you make assignments iterative? Can you make them small and worth worth less of a grade for each one? Can you make a reflection on particular things that happen during the course a part of your... um, a part of what's being evaluated. Yeah, you can. And I think you probably should do all those things. If a student really wants to find a way to cheat, they'll do it. And that's part of that sort of, that's the risk of trust, right? Is like, um, let, I, I'm, <laughs> I, I don't want to sound naive, but if I'm, if, if uh, my trust is occasionally violated in that way, that's a small price to pay for creating a, an environment and a um, a relationship with students that is based on trust and respect and and that type of thing and that's that's okay with me, I guess. I mean that feels weird to say, but I uh, I think that's how I feel. Um, yeah. <laughs> what do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? I guess you know, there's this, uh, a piece that I read while I was working on this, um, written by a scholar named Jeffrey Morrow. Um, and it's, it has the evocative title against cop shit. Uh, and his notion was like, um, this is not our job. We are not here to, to surveil and police our students. Um, so this idea that we got to catch the cheaters, like that's part of our job. Um, that's not a good way to run. That's not a good way to do education. Um, and I think that I would like all of us, and I've, this has been a long process for me as a writing teacher, like letting go of the idea that like one of our foremost duties is to catch cheaters or to, to prevent plagiarism. Um, and to step back a little bit that, and just to ask like, why is this happening? Why are students doing this? Um, I've had so many instances where on the face of something, you know, it appeared that plagiarism was happening, but if you get into a conversation with a student, you find out it's something totally different. It's a misunderstanding of citation practices, or it's a cultural mismatch in terms of how quotation is done, or, you know, these things like this. So I just, I would like for all of us just to kind of step back and rethink um, 
you know, why do we do this the way we do? Is there, is there a different or better way to do it? And I, I feel like I'm still learning that from teaching this class and doing this project. Um, but I think we have a lot, I think we have a lot to learn from hearing from the students themselves when it comes to this stuff. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Hang Hartsey, and telling us about what happened when you made your students cheat. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.